This is Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. It says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death, then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. The word of God for the people of God. So throughout our 52 weeks in the book of Mark, we've seen the religious leaders plotting. We've seen from very early on them not knowing quite what to do with Jesus, how to classify him, how to see him as someone to be trusted or someone that is dangerous. Early on in the book, in chapter 3, in fact, it seems that they go off and they begin to plot how they might kill Jesus to completely rid themselves of the uprising that he is bringing about, to squelch the rebellion that he is inciting, or at least in their mind that he is inciting. And here, as we end chapter 14, the story is coming to a conclusion. I was talking to a friend of mine who is uh, waist deep into binge watching a certain show on Hulu or Netflix, I forget which one, but she's you know, in, in her third season or so. And she's the type of person that told me, I won't continue to watch a show until I know what's going to happen at the end. So she gets online and, and finds all the spoilers just to see how it will end up with this couple or that couple or who's going to die or who's going to be okay, that sort of thing. 
if we were to do this with the story of Jesus, we would go to this section to begin to see the spoilers of what's happening in Jesus' life. Everything that he's been about up to this point is reaching its climax, its crescendo within the story of the gospel. Over chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus kept saying, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. But in three days, I will rise from the dead. Nobody quite understood what that meant because everyone at the time was expecting a Messiah who would kind of show up on that hypothetical white horse with the sword to to rid the powers of Rome at the time, to free Israel. But Jesus kept saying, this is not who I am, this is not what I'm about. And they begin to see the writing on the wall as to what Jesus actually meant when he said, the least will become the greatest to stress this idea of becoming a servant of all. The story in the book of Mark, it's coming to its conclusion, and we see how it's beginning to tie itself together in this passage. We also see within this passage, and this is where I want to spend most of our time this evening, we have two characters and two characteristics of these characters that are clearly contrasted. This is what Mark does. He creates what is called a a sandwich narrative where it introduces Peter as the one who's following Jesus along kind of at a distance so as to not, you know, cue himself off that he is with Jesus. And we're alerted to that fact. And then then the, the microscope goes into Jesus in this trial that he is withstanding before the Jewish leaders of the time. But then finally at the end of the story, we come back to Peter. Mark in his storytelling often does this by introducing pertinent details and then zooming out into something else and then coming back to the details. And we see Peter in the beginning of the story kind of following stealthily so as to not be identified as a follower of Jesus. And then in the middle of the story, we see Jesus on trial. Jesus as the one who is standing before his accusers. And the two characteristics in Jesus and Peter are clearly contrasted. What we see in the character of Jesus is integrity. His integrity throughout this trial, a lot of scholars will talk about whether or not this was actually a legitimate Jewish trial or this was something that was just done within the cloak of darkness in the middle of the night as it was. But Jesus, even throughout this time, he was showing himself to be one with integrity. It also is shown when the leading witnesses in this trial, they contradict each other. These are the people that keep showing up and telling lies. Their stories don't even match up, but we have Jesus just kind of seeing all these people that come in out of nowhere to accuse him of things that he did not do, yet he remains silent. Jesus' integrity is shown when the conviction is settled before the trial begins. These people in power, they don't bring in anyone to defend Jesus. It's solely a mission to find the pieces of evidence that they need to execute him. They have a plan, and they've had this plan from very early on in the book. They want him dead, and at this point in the story, they will be at pains to make sure that that takes place. Jesus' integrity is shown when the system is rigged. There's this um, book of Jewish laws called the Mishnah. We'll talk about this in a bit, but it it was codified in 200 CE, some 150 years after Jesus. There's six divisions, and there's certain what are called tractates within each of those divisions. And in one of those divisions, there's a tractate called Sanhedrin, and it gives uh, sort of instructions on how to conduct legal cases, okay? 
in the Mishnah and in the Tractate of Sanhedrin, it says in capital cases where people are pushing for the death penalty, which this was, they wanted to execute Jesus. In capital cases, the trial must be held during the day and the verdict must be reached during the day. In Jesus' case, this was in the middle of the, of the night, waking up the high priest and bringing him before uh, the, the rulers of the day. It also says that trials were not to be held on the eve of a Sabbath or on the on the eve of a festival day, especially during a festival, and this is during the Passover time. So again, not only was this trial held in the middle of night, which it shouldn't have been, it was also on the eve of Passover, or it could have been uh, potentially during Passover. It was not supposed to be taking place at this time. In capital cases, a verdict of conviction had to be reached the next day. If you were hearing evidence, you would have to wait until the following day to, to bring that capital charge against someone. Capital cases must also begin with reasons for acquittal, not reasons for conviction. But in this story, there are no reasons for acquittal whatsoever. Jesus' crew has abandoned him, except for Peter, who's got like a, a cloak over his head. He's warming himself by the fire and doesn't want to be seen by anyone. The rest of the people, we remember, have fled, some of which have fled naked. If you weren't here, that's a thing. Some guy in a tunic, and he just lost it and ran away naked, okay? But here, capital cases must begin with reasons for acquittal, and there were no reasons for acquittal presented. Now, I have some asterisks here by Mishnah Sanhedrin because this is much later than Jesus, so scholars would want to pause and say, we've got this information here, but we don't know if this is what the case was 200 years prior when Jesus was actually going through this. We don't know if we can take all of these laws about how people were tried and then bring them back and have them have some bearing on Jesus's trial in 30 to 33 CE. Okay? But even at the very least, it does bring about questions whether any properly constituted official Jewish court of the early first century would have proceeded in the blatantly prejudicial way that is depicted in Mark 14, 53 through 65. I think at times what we forget to see is Jesus as the one who is com completely taking on this injustice facing a trial of uh, his peers and the leaders of the day in the middle of the night in ways that could have potentially been breaking Jewish law, and he remains silent. Now, I don't think the point of this text is to see how Jesus withstands trials, uh, literally or figuratively, and then apply it to our lives, but I can't help but pause for a moment and think about when I'm wronged, when I feel like I am the object of injustice, whatever that might be, I get cut off on Route 13 or, goodness forbid, we've got two people that are going 50 miles an hour down Route 13 and they're just staying there and we can't get by them and we feel like it's just an injustice to our life. Or if I'm home arguing with Kate and I feel like I've been in, injustified, not a word, but that's how I feel. I'm just so crazy. I don't even know how to speak anymore. Like we, we go through these things where it seems as though we are the object of injustice and very rarely, at least for me, do I stand and do I take it and do I look to, to a higher purpose or a higher calling. I want to be right all the time and I want you to know it. But what we see here with Jesus is a completely different picture. This is the Son of God who knows these people intimately, seeing how they're treating him and yet stands in silence, so much so that the high priest begins to ask 
very pointed questions. Jesus' integrity is shown when the Jewish leadership wants to kill him. Now, the times when I, I suffer injustice, is they're, they're very minor. Jesus' life is on the line here, and I don't want to go so far as to paint this picture of the divine Jesus who is completely separated from this, who he doesn't feel any of this, who, who is so distanced from the people around him that this doesn't maybe hurt, even though he knows where he's going and he knows what it is that he has to do. Jesus' integrity is shown throughout this passage. The people are saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days it will build another not made with hands. Now, this is pretty close to what Jesus did say. When he goes into the temple, he says, this place is going to be destroyed, but it will be built back up. People didn't quite understand what he was talking about, but there was a judgment that was brought on the temple some people want to nitpick and say that Jesus didn't actually say that he was going to destroy the temple or that he was going to build another, which is why Mark says these are false accusations. But still, the heart behind it, we see that these people are beginning to lump a case against Jesus that surrounds his temple activity. When he went in there and just overthrew the tables and he was like getting the tax collectors and all those people and going crazy in the temple in chapter 11, those were the big moments when people could say, we can make this stick in a court of law. The other things that Jesus was doing, like healing on the Sabbath and just being this radical guy that was teaching all these things that were counterintuitive to, to Jewish law at the time, they couldn't make that stick. But this, this is a thing. Jesus, however, remains silent, and the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And this is important because he doesn't say the Son of God because he wants to distance himself from that language because at the time, blasphemy involved using the divine name and the high priest wanted to distance himself almost to set Jesus up in some way. And he says to him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? The temple stuff, yeah, we can work with that, but I want to hear you say, Jesus, I want to hear you say who you think you are because get this, the high priest was pretty hoity-toity. You don't hear that adjective too often, but I think it's pertinent here for this story. Pretty hoity-toity. He was the big shot. He was the big deal. And for him, this was an affront. It wasn't just an affront that Jesus was starting a potential rebellion against Rome. Now the Jewish leaders felt threatened by him because what he was doing was so different and so counterintuitive and countercultural that they began to feel threatened. And this is the high priest Caiaphas saying, you look me in the face and you tell me who you think you are. What's interesting about this, and my Greek nerds in the group, on Tuesday evenings, I've got a crew of like seven or so people, some of which Skype in, and we're learning biblical Greek together, which is great. But I want to teach you something together, okay? So this is Greek. It's in blue here on the screen. And it says... Sue ha Christos ha huias tu eulagetu. In Greek, there is no question. It's a statement. Literally, it translates, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the blessed one. What Mark is doing here and what some people think Jesus is doing, he's actually getting the high priest to say the statement, you are the Christ. You are 
the son of the blessed one. Now in Greek, I mean, this is a question, and the only way that you can tell it is a question is how Greek students, say it out loud like you mean it, the semicolon at the end, that is a question mark. Think Will Ferrell in Anchorman when he's looking at the prompter and there's a question mark and he just like inflects his voice high like that. Okay, that was a reference for maybe two of you or three of you. I'm dating myself, sorry. But he's saying, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. Maybe. You know what I mean? So he, it is a question, but it, it's, it's also, it's a statement. In English, it's very clear, and here in Greek, it's just this one little turn of a a phrase or an intonation in the voice, and some people think this is great. It's Mark's irony where Caiaphas is saying, you are the Christ. And this is where Jesus responds. I'm not one to sow seeds of doubt in your English Bibles. I believe that what you have in front of you is awesome, and it is to be trusted. However, some scholars will look at this, and in the NIV, or in most translations, it says that Jesus' response is, I am. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, period. Side note, when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus, he defines who he is by saying, I am who I am, So whenever Jesus utters these words, some people think that an astute first century Jew at the time would have heard a direct identification with God. I am. However, because Matthew's version of this story and Luke's version of this story does not say, I am, period. Instead, it begins, you have said that I am. Some people would want to see this passage in similar light. So Jesus responding in one of two ways, either you got that right, I am, or he says, you have said it yourself, Caiaphas. Either way, Jesus is very clear here. Not only am I to be linked with God, not only am I to be linked with the Messiah, not only am I to be linked with the very person that you fear me being, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, don't think that this is Jesus ascending or Jesus descending or Jesus floating away. This is a passage of vindication. This is him saying, I know what's about to happen, Caiaphas. But at the end, I will be justified. I will be vindicated. You will see me for who I am. Even though you can't see it right now because your eyes are red with rage, you will understand and you will see me as the the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. N.T. Wright says, Jesus' answer says in a tight-packed phrase, yes, I am a true prophet. Yes, what I said about the temple will come true. Yes, I am the Messiah. You will see me vindicated, and my vindication will mean that I share the very throne of Israel's God, Caiaphas. Yes, you are correct. That is who I am, period. In this passage, I've kind, of, I've kind of gone off track here, we see Jesus' integrity. I kind of turned him into a 
But we see Jesus in this passage standing up underneath of false accusations in what could be a a terribly uh, bad trial that shouldn't even have happened. Jesus facing death, saying, this is who I am. And suffering underneath of that with integrity. But what I do not want us to do is to separate Jesus from those decisions and make him into this kind of mindless, lobotomized human being who doesn't feel the weight of that or the oppression of that or the sadness of that or the brokenness that comes along with that. These people, in a sense, are saying, we don't want anything to do with you or your kingdom. We would rather you be dead. Do not tell me that that does not hurt the very soul of Jesus as he heads to the cross knowing what it is that he has to do. In contrast to Jesus standing up against this injustice and oppression and, and yes, answering questions honestly and uh, allowing people to have what it is that they need, we see Peter's complete and utter lack of integrity. And I don't want to make Peter the whipping boy here of the New Testament because that's where some people go. Look at Peter. Look at how dumb he is. Look at how obtuse he is. We are Peter every single day. But we see in a snapshot Peter's lack of integrity when he's faced with an honest question. Are you one of them? No. No, I'm not. And we even begin to see Peter move from the courtyard, like literally moving to a different room. Some people have said that Peter's denial is even half-hearted because he starts here and he just kind of creeps out and just moving backwards, not wanting to, to commit or to own it. Peter's lack of integrity is shown when his own safety is on the line because underneath of that accusation, you're one of them, aren't you, was if you are, you can't be here. If you are, we might kill you. If you are, you're certainly going to get a beat down at least. There was a cause of safety on the line with Peter and his lack of integrity is shown when he keeps denying that he even knows who Jesus is. I do not know or understand the question or the statement is what he says in the beginning. Peter's lack of integrity is shown when his friend is on death row, so to speak. When all the chips are down, and remember just a few verses before Peter is saying, Jesus, even if I have to die myself, I will be with you. There is nothing, not one thing that will keep me from you. I don't know him. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know who he is. Within a span of 15 or so verses, we see Peter completely going against his loud and boisterous claims to commitment. And again, I don't think that the point of this story is to to create comparisons with us and Peter, but doesn't that look pretty similar? When there's moments in our life when we say, like, I am in it, I'm all here, I'm, I'm going for broke, I'm following Jesus, and then you get the phone call from the doctor's office. Or you hear from a family member. Or you lose the job, you can't pay the bill. Somebody talks about you behind your back. You lose a friend, you lose a boyfriend, you lose a girlfriend, you lose a spouse. How quickly do we go from I'm committed regardless, even if I have to die, I will be there to I don't even know you. 
We see Peter's lack of integrity when he has pledged his allegiance to Jesus. But instead, what we do see is Peter lying. We see him cowering away in fear. And we see him bringing down curses amongst the people around. Now, Mark is a great storyteller, but he tells stories very tersely. He doesn't give you much to go on. And this version of the story in Luke is probably my favorite because it's like, it'll rip your heart out. But we see this interchange between the people and they keep saying, you're one of them, aren't you? He's, no, I'm not one of them. No, I'm not one of them. No, I'm not one of them. Until he starts bringing down these curses. And how the story is told in Luke, it says, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and he looked straight at him. And Peter flees and weeps bitterly. That, that little detail of Jesus, wherever he is. And in Mark's version, it seems as though Peter's kind of out the door a bit away. But in Luke's version, he's at least within eye shot. So Jesus, somehow hearing the, the rooster crowing, turning and finding his boy, his crew, his main guy, Peter, who had said a few verses earlier, I will be with you even if they have to kill me. And Jesus, who knew this was going to happen, locks eyes. And this is where I wonder. I wonder what his face looked like. I wonder what he was trying to communicate without words to his boy, Peter, who had just completely and utterly denied him? Was it a look of care and concern? Was it a look of anger and injustice? Was it a look of hope? As if to say, Peter, your story isn't over yet. And he writes, says, Jesus is accused before the high priest of being, among other things, a false prophet. Remember, at the end of that trial, they begin to punch him in the face and they blindfold him. They say, prophesy. In the other synoptic gospels in Matthew and Luke, the, the longer version of that is, prophesy and tell us who's hitting you, Jesus. If you're so great, if you're the son of God, you know all this stuff. Who's the person that just punched you in the stomach? After the verdict, Jesus is taunted, says he's such a hopeless prophet that he can't tell who's hitting him. But we then switch back to Peter. And this is why the Bible is genius, because it doesn't spell this out for you. It just begs you to read it like the best story you've ever read and to see these details. We then switch back to Peter, and he does exactly what Jesus said that he would the one who is being taunted and maligned as the false prophet in Luke is turning and looking at Peter, understanding that the things that he had said just a chapter before were coming to fruition right in front of his eyes. So what do we learn from this story? What do we learn about Jesus? Now, if we're just going to take the entire book of, of Mark, we've seen Jesus in many different scenarios, and here we see Jesus suffering underneath of injustice and oppression, 
and I'm trying to paint this picture of Jesus as one who identifies with you wherever it is that you are. And for some of you in the room, you have been in a place of suffering under oppression and injustice, whether that's relationally, vocationally, financially, whatever. Like, you've been in those moments. And I want to communicate to you that Jesus knows and understands where you have been. And we should receive hope from that. When we pray, it is not to some person who has no connection to who we are. It's one that has been there where we are. Perhaps not in the specific details of your, of your story, but he's a man who knows abandonment and neglect and denial and rejection. But in those moments, he stood quiet. And as we'll see, he brings his people back to him. What do we learn about Peter? Nothing that we didn't already know. I mean, Peter, he's kind of a mess. One minute he's saying, like, this is who I am. This is, this is the person that I want to be. And the next minute he's saying something really stupid. And again, the point is not to draw comparisons. But we see a lot of ourselves in him where at times our commitment is strong and our, our, our connection with God is strong, but then when something hits, what happens, where do we go? I think that we can ask questions about ourselves from this passage, who we are in various circumstances and who it is that maybe even that we want to be. But beyond this, I do think that we learn something about hope. In Mark's gospel, it is, it's buried. It's very subtle. But when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's not taken off guard by what's happened here. In fact, he says, you will all fall away. You will all abandon me. You will all become scared and fearful and you will go and hide for your lives. Some of you will run away naked in the garden. Some of you will sneak around, but at the end of the day, you're going to say you don't know me. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Did you catch that? You're all going to leave me. But I'm going to prepare a way. And there's going to be a moment when we're together again. When all of that denial and rejection goes away and we are back in relationship together. Mark is super subtle. John is less subtle. We have this great interchange with, with Peter and Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. You know I love you. And this is threefold reconstitution of, of Peter. It's bringing him back. And, and instead of the, the three denials that Peter has of Jesus, I don't know him, I don't know him, screw you, I don't know him, it's Peter do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Three times. And Peter becomes one of the foundational figures that has grown this church. The reason why 50 or so of us are in this room on Sunday is because People like Peter, led by the Spirit in crazy ways, have been used mightily by God to build this church. And I think that we have an opportunity 
this evening, I think that we have an opportunity with our lives to move from the denial and the rejection and the whatever it is into obedience, into calling, into being used mightily by God to continue to build this church. And for some of you, it does not look like you going to seminary. For some of you, it looks like you beginning to speak to the person that occupies the cubicle next to you. For some of you, it means that your life actually looks like the way that you want it to look and there's consistency between the things that you say and the things that you do. And for others, it's just being able to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. We are going to demonstrate ourselves to be like Peter. We are going to deny, we are going to fall on our face, we are going to reject. But what do we do after that? I believe that some of us are so caught up in the, he couldn't possibly use me because of the things that I've said or done. And I think that we see this image of Jesus on the beach saying, do you love me? Do you love me? If so, then do my work. We have this opportunity to do the work of Jesus, where we become agents of reconciliation and restoration and hope and love, where we begin to act in a way that looks like Jesus, where we begin to be people that he is calling us and begging us to be for his purpose. I hope that tonight, in the midst of these two characters that we see, the thread that unites is a thread of hope, where you will all fall away, but I'm going to lead the charge, and I will meet you again. I hope that we can allow ourselves to get to that place. We're not only where we accept Jesus, we're not only we say, yes, you are the Christ, I believe that, but we begin to walk in a way that looks like Jesus. Mercy, forgiveness, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Let that be our story, even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our denial, even in the midst of our rejection, allow that to be who we are as a people following Jesus, becoming like him, and being used greatly for his service in this town, in this community, and in the various spheres of influence that he has gifted us with.